the gospel, it is what produces salvation in the hearts of everyone who believes. And the reason that's true is because it reveals, the gospel reveals how sinners can gain a right standing before God through the work of Jesus Christ. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom begins a new six-part series titled The Keynote of Romans. Paul's letter to the Romans is the most complete exposition of the gospel found in Scripture. We'll be focusing on the keynote of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verses 16 through 17. Why is it that this good news, the gospel, causes such animosity and contempt in many? Well, as you'll be reminded through this series, the Apostle Paul reveals that the gospel firstly accuses all men of having deceitful hearts, polluted consciences, evil and selfish motives, and pervasive pride. It identifies the source of all of man's problems as sin. In fact, the gospel says that every human being, without exception, is a fallen sinner living in rebellion against God, and only Jesus Christ can bring salvation. And Tom, that list of offenses might seem a strange way to introduce the keynote of Paul's letter, but they remain a central component of the gospel, don't they? That's right. In fact, they're at the very heart of the gospel. As Paul begins in the book of Romans to explain the gospel, he spends the first three chapters explaining mankind's real condition that makes the gospel necessary. And so the gospel by its very nature is offensive and that that offense comes from what the Bible says about us, about our sinfulness, as well as from the claims, the exclusive claims that Jesus makes to be the way, the truth, and the life, the only way to the Father. And so the gospel is offensive, and yet the gospel is at the same time this incredible news that we all need to hear. That's where Paul takes us in this passage. Thanks, Tom. And friend, open your Bible now as we join our teacher here on The Word Unleashed. You would think because the gospel is good news that people everywhere, when they hear it, are eager to receive it, but that is absolutely not the case. In fact, for 2,000 years, Christianity has largely borne the brunt of the world's sarcasm and ridicule. In the late 2nd century, a man named Celsus launched the first comprehensive attack against the Christian faith. This is what Celsus wrote, now 1,800 years ago. Let no cultured person draw near, none wise, none sensible, For all that kind of thing they count evil. But if any man is ignorant, if any man is wanting in sense and culture, if any is a fool, then let him come boldly to the Christian faith. He called Christians, quote, the most uneducated and vulgar of persons. He compared Christians to a swarm of bats, to ants, to frogs holding a symposium in a swamp, to worms cowering in the mud. And that tune continues to be played to our day. 
If you doubt that, just go online and read some of the vitriol and hatred that's poured out on Christian websites by those who hate our faith. Now, why is it that our faith is so often the the object of the world's scorn? It is primarily because of the core content of our faith, which we call the gospel. You say, why would the good news cause scorn and ridicule? Why would it be hated? Well, think about what the gospel says. The gospel accuses all men of having deceitful hearts, polluted consciences, evil and selfish motives, and being filled with pervasive pride. It argues that the very best human beings can do is defiled and unacceptable before God. In fact, man's best actions can be compared to menstruous rags. It identifies the source of all of man's problems as sin. In fact, the gospel says that every human being without exception is a fallen sinner living in rebellion against God and merely awaiting the sort of looming display of the wrath of God. It proclaims that a peasant carpenter who was crucified as a criminal under the Romans, who rose from the dead, is in fact the Son of God and the Savior of the world. By turning from one's sins and putting all of one's faith and confidence in that crucified carpenter, and in him alone, the sinner can be radically changed from the inside out in a moment of time. He can have his sins forgiven and he can be made right with God. When the world hears that message, the way they typically respond is the same way the Athenians responded on Mars Hill. You remember the response? When they heard Paul reciting the gospel, there were a few who believed. But by and large, they said, this man is an idle babbler, a proclaimer of strange deities, and when they heard about the resurrection, they began to sneer. Since the gospel is so often the source of ridicule, and let's be honest, since none of us likes to be ridiculed and scorned, it's a constant temptation to be ashamed of it. Paul addresses that temptation, and Paul says, I understand the temptation, but I am not ashamed. Now let me just remind you of what we're studying together. The book of Romans is the most magnificent and profound explanation of the gospel ever written. It was written from Corinth near the end of Paul's third missionary journey, probably around the year 56 AD. The theme of this letter is introduced in the very first verse. At the end of the first verse, Paul says, I have been appointed, set apart for the gospel of God. The good news that finds its source in God, God's announcement of good news concerning His Son. Now, having introduced that theme, he develops it a little more in just introductory way. And really the first 17 verses are, are sort of introduction to the letter, as we've noted. Verses 1 to 7, his greeting to the church there in the churches there in Rome, a general statement about his calling, about his his particular commission to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles. 
Then in verses 8 to 15, Paul describes his relationship as an apostle to the Christians in Rome. And he details his long-time desire to come to Rome. Notice he ends verse 15 by asserting that he is eager to preach the gospel in Rome. And in verses 16 and 17, he explains why. Why that eagerness is there in his heart. And in fact, he explains why his life, his ministry, and this letter are all devoted to the gospel. And in so doing, Paul provides a a formal introduction to this letter's theme. Notice in verse 16, he introduces us to the theme of the gospel and develops that theme a little bit. And then in verse 17, you'll notice he gives us a brief exposition of exactly what the gospel is. The gospel is simply a message about righteousness from God. In other words, it is about that righteousness that comes from God, that God gives to the sinner as a gift by grace alone, based on the life and death of Jesus Christ alone. A right standing before God. That's what the gospel is about. It tells us how we can move from being sinners to having a righteousness, a right standing before God outside of ourselves. We receive this gift, and he's very clear about this in verses 16 and 17, this gift of righteousness by faith alone. Now, these two verses then, verses 16 and 17, establish the theme or the thesis of the book. The rest of the letter is, in some senses, an exposition of these verses. In fact, it's not an exaggeration to say that these two verses are the essence of biblical Christianity. They are the heart of true religion. And as we will learn, they are even, in these two sentences, they are the foundation for the Protestant Reformation. Let's read them together. Let's get a running start and we'll begin back up in verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. In these verses, Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God and it is what produces salvation in the hearts of everyone who believes. And the reason that's true is because it reveals, the gospel reveals or manifests, it explains how sinners can gain a right standing before God through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, notice Paul begins his brief, powerful statement of the thesis of this letter in a very surprising way. Verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
for us to really appreciate what Paul really means here and why he begins this way, we need to sort of transport ourselves back in time for a moment. So I want you to do that with me. We need to reorient our thinking to the culture of the first century. Because the worlds of the Old and New Testament were very different from our own, especially when it comes to this issue of shame. When we think of shame, we think of subjective feelings of shame. I feel shame because of guilt, or I feel shame because of inadequacy or inferiority or or some other feeling inside. But shame and honor in the biblical setting, particularly in the Greco-Roman world of the New Testament involved much more than that. Their culture was all about honor and shame. It was an honor-shame society. In fact, one writer describing the Greek world said this, the chief good was to be well spoken of, the chief evil to be badly spoken of by one's society. Try to imagine, you know, we live in a world where there's increasingly very little sense of shame. But try to imagine a culture where the chief good, more than wealth, more than status, more than any of that, the chief good was being well thought of, having a good reputation. And the chief evil, on the other hand, was being poorly thought of. In that context, shame was not a subjective feeling. It was the public humiliation of someone who had previously enjoyed a position of honor and respect. It was an objective loss of status and reputation. In the Old Testament, for example, there were specific acts that were designed to undermine the status and respect of certain people, to publicly shame them. Let me give you just a couple of examples, just so you know what I'm talking about. You remember in Deuteronomy 25, there's what's called the leveret marriage. If a man died without children, his unmarried brother was to marry his widow and raise up children. That was for the good of the nation, the nation of Israel, so that the nation would grow and thrive. However, the brother could refuse to marry the widow. But if he refused, there was a public ceremony he had to endure. And the whole point of the public ceremony was to publicly shame him for his unwillingness to take up that responsibility. You remember this? You remember how it went? Deuteronomy 25, it's detailed. Everybody assembled. They assembled in the gate or in the square, in the market, where, where it was a public event. And in the middle of that public event, the widow would take the shoe off of his foot and she would spit in his face. It was a way of saying, here is the man who refused to do what he was obligated to do. He is worthy of shame. He is worthy of losing his honor. Another example is in 2 Samuel chapter 10. The king of one of the neighboring countries, Ammon, had died. And David sent ambassadors to Ammon as a gesture of goodwill. However, the leaders of Ammon misunderstood, and they accused the men David sent of being spies. And so they wanted to shame them before they sent them back to Israel. And so they cut off half their beards, and they cut off their robes from the waist down. 
Again, this was to publicly shame them. It was to objectively remove a sense of honor and dignity from them. And here's how they responded. The text says they were greatly humiliated. Now, when you come to the New Testament era, in the Roman world, there was one public act that was designed to bring the deepest and most profound stigma of shame. It was the act of public crucifixion. You see, crucifixion was not merely a torturous means of execution, although it was certainly that. It was intended to place an indelible stigma on the victim. In fact, just just to show you that was true, there were times when the Romans would crucify someone who was already dead. Every step in the process of crucifixion was designed to produce greater humiliation and loss of honor. Martin Hingle, in his book, excellent book, Crucifixion in the Ancient World and the Folly of the Message of the Cross, documents the process of designed humiliation in the public crucifixion of someone. Let me just give it to you so you understand what this was about. It began with a public trial. Now, again, the key element here is it's in public. So all of all of the bad things about this person that would bring them to need to be crucified are brought out to everyone. They know what happened in this man's life. It's intended to degrade the status of the accused and to label him as a shameful person. Once the sentence was passed, it was followed by flogging, by torture, and especially the shedding of blood. And again, in that culture, that was a That was a way to degrade, to shame. Thirdly, the victims were crucified, usually completely naked, as was likely the case in the case of our Lord. And in the lengthy course of dying, the many hours and even days, they often fouled themselves with their own urine and excrement. That was adding to the shame of their death. They were forced to carry their own crossbeam through the public streets of the city to the place of execution. Again, that was to mark them out as a shameful person who was so desperately wicked that they needed to be crucified. Their personal property was confiscated, like their clothing, for example. Everything that belonged to them was taken away. Executions were a crude form of public entertainment, and so the crowds were were encouraged to come and to heap their mocking, their ridicule on the person who was dying, as we see in the case of Christ. Rome would sometimes fasten the victims to the crosses in, in whimsical, sort of distorted ways. It was all to make them a joke, to make them a laughingstock. In many cases, the victims were denied honorable burial. In fact, their corpses would be left on display for all to see, and they would be devoured by carrion birds and by wild animals. What I want you to see is that everything about the process of public execution was designed intentionally to shame that person, to remove all honor and make them a a person of public derision and shame. Because of this, the Romans, in secular writings, often referred to crucifixion and to the cross specifically as a tree of shame. 
It was considered so despicable, so degrading, that Cicero argued that an honorable Roman should never even mention the word cross in polite conversation. Most followed his advice. In spite of hundreds of thousands of Roman crucifixions, the fullest accounts that we possess of crucifixion and the process is contained in the Gospels. We can't fully understand this. As we sit here this morning, there may be a Bible stitched, or excuse me, a cross stitched on the front of your Bible. There may be a cross hanging on a necklace around your neck. There's a cross in the window behind me. We have taken honor in the cross, but that was not the culture of the first century. It was shameful. You didn't talk about it. And anyone who died that way was the ultimate object of derision and shame. That was the cultural climate in which Paul lived and preached. And it was the context in which he wrote, I am not ashamed. It was Paul's recognition that the gospel by its very nature is something that Christians are constantly tempted to be ashamed of. John Chrysostom, one of the most capable of the early expositors of the church, said this, Paul was going to preach Jesus, who was thought to be a carpenter's son. He had no bodyguards. He was not encircled in wealth, but even died as a culprit with robbers and endured many other inglorious things. You see, because of all of this, it was a temptation in the first century for Christians to be ashamed. It was a temptation for Jesus' disciples. You remember in Mark 8, verse 38, he says to them, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, my teaching, the gospel, in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It was a temptation even for Paul. Why would he say, I am not ashamed? James Stewart pastor in Edinburgh who wrote a commentary on this letter, said, it makes no sense to say that you are not ashamed of something unless there is a good reason to have been tempted to be ashamed. Timothy was tempted to be ashamed. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Timothy, don't be ashamed. Don't be ashamed of Christ or the gospel. It was a temptation for the people in Rome. Paul eventually makes it to Rome twice. You remember he makes it during his first imprisonment. He's released. That's the imprisonment recorded at the end of the book of Acts. But then he's imprisoned a second time, and it's from that second imprisonment that he writes his second letter to Timothy, and it's in that second imprisonment that ends with his death. And what does he say when he's in Rome about the response of the church? He says in 2 Timothy 1.15, All who were in Asia turned away from me, except a man named Onesiphorus, who was not ashamed of my chains. Can we just acknowledge that for every single one of us who are truly in Christ, there have been times in our lives and experience when we have been ashamed. You see, our society is happy to tolerate an emasculated form of Christianity as long as it's content to be one of a number of viable options. But the people around us are every bit as intolerant of the true gospel and the true Christ and those who embrace him 
as those who lived in the first century were. Nothing's changed. Sometimes that intolerance breaks out in physical violence and persecution. We're praying for our brothers and sisters right now in places on this planet where that's exactly what they're experiencing. But in our culture, for the most part, it appears in more subtle forms. It appears as ridicule, insults, sarcasm, negative depiction of evangelical Christians in the news and media, television and film. Or maybe it appears in the subtle form of you pull up behind a car and on the bumper there is a fish growing legs. Or maybe it's a shark devouring the fish, which is the Christian symbol. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, The Keynote of Romans. Tom will have part two for you on our next program. Join us then, won't you? Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And be sure to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth.